0: Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and
1: Al Levy. Hello everyone, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and Al to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends. And we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B R O W N E M O N U M E N T S. And you can find AL at AL Levy U R M Audio. That's E Y A L L E V I U R M A U D I O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast, so please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I want to welcome an old friend of mine to this episode, Mr. Ryan Bruce, aka Fluff, who is a guitar player, songwriter, YouTube phenomenon, and co-founder of his band, Dragged Under. He's amassed nearly 400,000 subscribers and 60 million views on his YouTube riffs, beards, and gear. And Ryan is known for reviewing gear, music, software, and also for churning out some excellent riffs. I introduce you, Ryan Bruce. Welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello, sir. It's a pleasure.
2: I'm a huge fan of this podcast and of, of both of you, and I'm a huge fan of uh, the Riff Hard podcast curriculum because uh, it has helped me with my downpicking has it dude yeah so uh we have a couple of songs in my band that have some pretty fast downpicking parts but they're short bursts and i have never ever been able to downpick them as we recorded it and i took basically the downtime of quarantine to better my right hand because we have shows and tours coming up and I was like man I, I should stop alternate picking these little parts so i, I bought the course legit you
0: didn't have to
2: I know, but I want to support, but also thank I do. thought like if it's going to be worth it, then it's worth paying for. And it has been.
1: I'm going to have to send you a present as a thank you.
2: You don't have to do that. It's been, I'm very, I haven't gotten very far because I'm still, I don't have as much time as I would like to do that stuff. But whenever I have like five minutes for a video rendering, I'll do the the scale exercise and I'll do the alternate, uh, you know, on the one, on the two, on the three, and then
1: I'll Yeah. The, the accent placement sort of thing
2: dude, that shit is hard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I think that we did a good
0: job of it with the riff hard curriculum, but just in general, what's amazing about getting better at things on guitar, such as down picking technical things is when we're younger, we think we need to spend 12 hours a day on that shit, but you don't. If you spend like five minutes here, 10 minutes there when you have the time, but like Focus properly, challenge yourself and stay consistent, meaning you keep putting in those minutes over time. Don't just do five minutes and then don't do it again for a month, but like, yeah, keep doing that. It's amazing how much better you'll get with just a little bit of focus practice.
2: Uh, This is so dumb. I'm largely self-taught. I never practiced with a metronome ever. And then doing the riff hard stuff has forced me to download like a metronome app on my phone. And dude, the improvement is immense right off the bat for me just with the metronome. <laughs> as dumb as that sounds,
0: I didn't know you didn't practice with the metronome. <laughs> I'd rather practice, like, I don't know. I, I don't,
1: I'm busy. You kind of do practice with the metronome then when you're writing songs for YouTube and obviously your bands. Obviously,
2: I guess that is that is correct. Like, a, if I'm listening to a click track, yeah, that is true, but like. The actual down picking, i like bumping it up five BPM and another five. I'm like, oh
1: God. Have you tried recording yourself yet? Because one thing that I promote on the site is for people to either video themselves on a weekly basis or record it into a DAW so they can actually visually see what they're doing. Because it gives you a good indication of like the areas in which you can improve on.
2: I haven't, but specific, actually I have technically. So specifically, I did this demo for uh, a Mark Tremonti PRS guitar that I got. And that song is one of my band songs that I do, and that passage specifically is why I got the Riff Hard course is so I could do that on video and not fuck it up. So yeah, and people were like, oh dude, you're down picking Oh, fuck. And I was like, thanks, John Brown.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So I'm glad you found it useful, Ryan. Yeah, so
0: good, dude. very, very glad. And I'm glad also that despite how fucking busy you are, you have still found ways to improve yourself, which I think anybody can or could if they wanted to. Key, The key being wanted to.
2: I didn't really give a shit about any of that stuff before, and it's only lately I've been just like, okay, I should really try to improve myself because if I'm actually now, now that the band is actually like...
0: You're in a signed band, baby.
2: Yeah, like, you know, we're, we're about to go do a tour with Bare Tooth and Wage War, and then we have some other huge tours next year, and then we're doing some huge shows... I was just like, you know, what? I should actually like take the time at least to be able to play my own songs correctly. So.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it makes a lot of sense that even though there was a big time period in my life where I was playing guitar for the sake of getting better at guitar, eventually that transitioned into getting better at certain things for the job I had to do. So if there's a certain tour, it's, working on those songs and those songs only, uh, if there's a certain recording working on the techniques needed for that recording and very, very much outcome oriented, goal oriented, not just open-ended practicing for the sake of practicing. And I know that you've been very organized, um, just as a human and as a producer of content and work over the years. And so it kind of makes sense to me from what I know of how you think and how you lay out your days and all that, that, you don't do things just to do them. You always do things with a purpose. And so now that you are actually doing these tours, the band is actually doing some big things, then it makes perfect sense to uh, do what's required on guitar.
2: You know what? The fans deserve it, man. It is true. I don't want to biff it. Like, you know, someone, someone pays a hard-earned money to come see us. and Then I just, I'm biffing like alternate. I nah, Fuck that. <laughs> Can't be like I. I can't be alternate pick, man.
0: (laughs) Okay. So that said, you know, I had this question for you. I was thinking about this as I was making my coffee before this. What do you see yourself as? Because, you know, like I've known you to do like 19 different things. Like I know that you've played guitar, written songs, mixed things, the YouTube channel, you were working for JST for a while. You've made a course with URM. We've podcasted like 9 million times. Like, you just put out your own course. Like, what do you see yourself as?
2: I don't know. I've always wanted to be the Jay Leno of the guitar world, if that makes any sense. And and what so you
0: have a lot of cars.
2: A lot of amps. (laughs) I mean, fuck, I have like seven rectifiers, but...
0: Send me one. How big's your chin?
2: It's actually completely non-existent, which is why I have to have a beer, because otherwise I look like a fat 12-year-old if I don't have the beer. (laughs) (laughs) It's fucking horrible.
0: You look good, by the way.
2: Thanks, man. You too. Thanks. The band actually just today put out uh, the first single from a live EP we're putting out uh, from a live streamer recorded like six months ago, and having to see myself over and over again editing the video and how fat I was, I was like, all right. It's time to lose some weight. (laughs) I've lost like 15 pounds since that was filmed. Anyway, I see myself as, I don't know, I want to be like the Jay Leno of the guitar world. Like, he started out doing stand-up comedy, then he did The Tonight Show. He's done all sorts of different levels of things, but it's everything he does, you can tell he just really gives a shit about. And I just think that, you know, I don't have to be just band tour guy. Because I love the video side of things and I love making records and I love nerding out of mic positions and tube types. And I don't know, maybe Chris Hardwick is is a different or a better example of like, he's in Comcast commercials and he's also hosting the show and he also has the Nerdist podcast and he also does all these crazy things. Like, I don't know, man, I just, I see myself as an an everyman, I guess.
1: I think that maybe it's just that you like to stay busy on things that make you happy.
2: You know what, dude? Honestly, I do because, you know, when I got divorced, you know, A.L. knows, like I got divorced in
0: 2015. You went through a massive life change.
2: Yeah. So like I was fired from Boeing and my wife at the time started sleeping with her boss the same month. And I was like, you know what? I I got this like weird second chance and I started, you know, I really dove in full time to the YouTube channel. Dude, honestly, like, we are all going to fucking die at some point, and all life is is this ticking clock.
0: It's an hourglass.
2: What are you going to do with that time? Are you going to f- fuck off and, and surf TikTok, or are you actually going to do some shit that people are going to actually be able to remember you by? Which sounds stupid and stupid deep, but, like... I don't know, man. Like, that's how I view all of this.
1: That's a really good mindset
0: to have. How old were you when all that happened? I know we've talked about this in URM, like the very first time you came on, but I'm assuming a lot of people listening to this haven't heard, you know, the URM podcasts from 2016. So how old were you?
2: I was 35. And at that point, I had been in corporate America for about a decade. I hadn't played a show or done music in about a decade And the YouTube thing was existent, but it was just a hobby. It was just a part-time thing because I thought it was fun. And I think I had 60,000 or 50,000 subs by the time all of that happened. So, like, I wasn't doing bad, but, like, I definitely wasn't making any money off of it or anything like that.
0: At that point in time, would you have considered yourself more as a dabbler who had the benefit of being early to the show? To the YouTube show, basically?
2: Yeah. At the time, I thought I was late. I thought I was way late.
0: (laughs) No, you were not late. You should think you're late, but you weren't late. You were early in the grand scheme of things.
2: Chappers, Tone King, Ola, and Keith Merrow were already doing what I wanted to do. So I was like, well...
0: Yeah, it's over.
2: It's over. It's done. Pack it up, boys. there's
0: nothing left to do here. I mean, there also are a bunch of bands that have already been signed and put out songs. May as well not do that (laughs) either.
2: (laughs) Dude, that's a great analogy. You know the the wife at the time sat me down and she was like look this is taking up starting to take up a lot of your time this isn't going to go anywhere can you just be happy with going to work and sitting in a cubicle for 8 hours a day and then coming home and like watching TV
1: I'd say that it's good that she's gone
2: It is <laughs> it was the best thing that ever happened to me honestly but uh, and I just re- distinctly remember going no why I don't want to be my dad <laughs>
1: So
2: <laughs> And I love my dad. And, like, I, me and my dad have had this conversation, and he's retired and having a blast. He's, like, going to come out on tour with us and, like, come to Europe with us and, like, all this cool shit. But, uh, you know, I don't want to be that. I want to be I want to be out doing stuff.
0: You know what's cool? So we just had Miles Kennedy on uh, a few weeks ago. One of the most unbelievable vocalists of all time, maybe. A phenomenal guitar player, too, but a really cool person. But we talked about how, you know, his Break didn't happen until his early 30s, and uh, there were plenty of times where he could have just decided that he was too old and it was too late. And then imagine what he would have missed out on. So I kind of, I kind of see you going through the major transition at 35. There's a lot of people, man, in the URM community who I have personally known who are 35, 36, 37, who then go on to do awesome things. And then I also know people who at like 30 or younger feel like it's all passed them by. It's too late. They wish they could have done this, but they just got in too late.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's an old stigma that I battle every single day because like I just turned 40. So Happy birthday! Uh, I mean, not just turned forty. Like,
0: welcome to the club.
2: But yeah, I'm I'm old, and like I'm forever getting teased by my bandmates who are ten years younger than me. Erderman just turned twenty three. He is a baby. But the the rest of the band is like thirty, thirty one.
1: He, he'll be lucky to be your age. Serious? Yeah, Ryan in England. You're old enough to be his dad.
2: <laughs> oh God, my daughter is twenty. <laughs> she turns twenty in September.
1: Dude, that's
0: wild.
2: I just yeah. So like, I'm always getting teased. About my age from my bandmates, which is fine because I tease them about plenty of other stuff. But
0: you know what's funny about that though? Like I've thought about it. Maybe I'm just telling myself that. But all it means <laughs> is you didn't die, which is really awesome. <laughs> like, congrats! There's lots of people who don't have that who never, never got to survive.
2: Is that a George Carlin bit? I'm gonna live forever. So far, so good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Really? Like, what is the alternative? Like, dying?
2: Right. I don't know. It's not too late. It's honestly not. Like,
0: It's not too late to die? No, it's
2: not. Yeah, No, it's not too late to just start doing shit for anybody. Like, all the big bands that are out there right now, Queens of the Stone Age, they're in their mid-50s. They're a huge band, Foo Fighters, 50s. All the young bands, like, Asking Alexandria, they were kids. They were literal children.
0: Dude, they're in their 60s. Right.
2: (laughs) Ben, if you hear this, I love you. You know, they started out doing really cool stuff when they were actual children. And now, you know, they're, what, mid-30s or something like that, early 30s. And
0: But I think that for people who haven't had that, you know, haven't had a career, you know, you could say Foo Fighters, but Dave Grohl was like 19.
2: When Nirvana hit, yeah.
0: When he became famous. I think a lot of people who have come up through the corporate world or through you know, just working jobs they don't have their heart in, by the time they get to 35, they do see people, like, asking Alexandria, who were teenagers, and they think to myself, look at the head start those people will have, and look at where I am, and I, yeah. I'm not even signed. Like, I don't even have a following. Like, I haven't even done shit. It's too late. And you you can spin a very convincing tale if you start telling
1: yourself that stuff. It was an actor, really famous one that didn't get his big break until he was in I want to say late forties. And he actually had the perfect saying in one of his films: "Get busy living, get busy dying." And that is uh, Morgan Freeman. And can you imagine a world without him in it? No.
0: Anthony Hopkins uh, was 41 when he did uh, Silence of the Lambs, I believe. You're right. Before that, he was an unknown. That's interesting. I never really considered that as his big break. It was his big break. He was just a struggling actor before that.
2: Dude, Rick Nelson and Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick recorded the first record when he was 34. Damn. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh.
1: Yeah, you never know. Get busy living.
0: Yeah, so it just goes to show that if you make the decision, age is... Generally not a factor within reason.
1: I think it also depends on what the demographic is that you're trying to reach as well. And it's just being smart about what it is you want to achieve. Like, obviously, if you want to play music like Asking Alexandria how they were when they first did their first album, obviously, that's going to be more inclined to the younger crowd. But as long as you're smart about it in you know, that you're not wanting to do that, or just
0: wear masks.
1: Or just wear masks. Yeah, do, do a full slip knot.
0: I'm totally not kidding. Nobody knows what Sleep Token looked like. I know they're not in their 50s because I've talked to their vocalists before, but they could be. Ghost could have been in their 50s, 60s. Yes. Yeah. Clown, I believe, was 35. Or 36 or something when Slipknot first got signed. If you do music that appeals to a younger demographic. There's a way out. Just (laughs) wear a mask. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I do agree, though. There are age appropriate things. Like you do need to have some awareness. Like, you know, if you start making talks like you're 15 years old when you're 40, it's kind of weird. Freaks people out. Yeah. Freaks people out. I think self awareness is uh, always a very, very important thing. But I also think that with self awareness, it's important to not let quote unquote realism get in the way too much. Not always, because what I was saying earlier, you can start spinning a story that's very, very realistic and talk yourself out of almost anything.
2: Oh, yeah. I do do it. Even opportunities, as an example. So, Uh, Our vocalist, Tony, uh, he manages a couple of YouTubers like Jared Dine, CBT, myself, and uh, so he now fields opportunities and all that stuff, and he handles all that the business side because I don't want to fucking do that. Anyway, I don't want to answer emails and all that stuff. But back in 2018, I was hired by eBay Japan to fly over to Japan and to vlog and they're like, Hey, you know, we, we want to, we want to do a couple of sponsored videos. We want to fly you over here. And my initial reaction was, well, I don't, that's like, that's just me. Like, I'm not, that's not, I'm not worth that. Like what?
0: Here, let me talk you out of this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like I would have totally shut that down if it was me handling that kind of stuff. And Tony was just like, dude, they want to fly you over to Japan. Let them like they decide (laughs) if you're worth the, the effort, not you. idiot. And I was just like, that's weird though. That's, you know, that's too big. Like, um, like, So your self perception will have a direct effect on your opportunities.
0: That's some classic imposter syndrome right there.
2: Oh dude, I have it so bad. So bad, dude. You have no idea.
0: Oh, I do have some idea. I think I've got it too. And uh, lots of people, lots of people who do well have it. And I think the reason I'm bringing it up, I think, you know, for people listening who struggle with it, because They, you know, they hit me up all the time. And it's a question that comes up is how do you deal with it? Um, My answer is it doesn't go away. So you get used to it. Like, because for instance, you could get a great opportunity like your Japan trip where it wouldn't be offered to you if you didn't belong in that opportunity. That opportunity is not just going to be given to you out of charity. There's a reason for why you were asked, but your imposter syndrome is going to tell you that some kinds of weird shit that doesn't coincide with reality. Like they don't know the truth about me. Like they're going to realize when I get there that I'm Dude. a fucking fraud. Dude,
2: that's, <laughs> that's so fucking funny. I got over there. So these guys at these guitar shops, I'm like, I get over there. I was vlogging for a uh, Ishibashi music, which is basically like Japan's guitar center. And amazing, amazing people. The owner came out and it was it was incredible. I immediately start at the time, I was rattling off like, oh, like, you know, yeah, I'm in a band with Jared Dines. Like, that's probably why. And they had never heard of Jared ever.
1: That's quite interesting.
2: We don't know who that is, uh, but we're, we're really stoked you're here and really love like the thing you did with Rob Scallon. Like we these things, they start rattling off like things I've done. And I was like, but wait. Like, I don't know. That was such a mind fuck for me to just justify that in my head.
1: I totally
0: understand it. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Like that even evidence in real life, like real life showing you that you're not an imposter (laughs) isn't good enough.
2: You know, I don't know, man. Like, dude, the same thing has happened with like writing songs and co-writes, working with other people, producers, labels all this stuff, when you're writing music on, on the level that we're at, not that we're in some huge level, but like, we have opportunities, like we have a publishing deal with BMG. So we have all these opportunities to write with these amazing songwriters. I'm like, oh, well, no, I, I shouldn't be in that writing session. And like BMG's like, why? Like we're linking you up. Like they want to like, let's write some songs. And I'm like, Oh, I'm not, I'm like, I am not worthy of like, you know, being in a <laughs> room with, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, 100%. That has happened a couple of different times. And like, yeah, our manager's just like, what are you doing, man?
1: It's it's really weird how that imposter syndrome works. It happened to me actually a few years ago at the Nam show. And I canceled all of my clinics on the day off because I just had a panic attack about playing. And, you know, obviously I'd been flown out there and all these people wanted me to play on their their stand but I just couldn't bring myself to do it I just felt like I wasn't supposed to be there
2: oh dude yeah
1: yeah I think it happens to I think to a degree it happens to everyone and I think that mm-hmm. regardless of how big someone is or your perception of how big someone is no one really unless there's something very very wrong with that person <laughs> will ever go through this sort of mindset where they're putting them in the same bracket. I mean, we had a podcast with Josh Travis a few days ago. Love Josh. Yeah. He's incredible. And he has the same thing. You could hear it when he was talking, how he would compare himself to, or not compare himself to these other guitar players that he's put in the same category as, and he just didn't understand it. So I think that regardless of how great someone is as long, you know, it's always going to be that people get imposter syndrome.
0: Yeah. I have this thing where, uh, I feel exactly like I did when I was like 22 (laughs) and had no income, no prospects, no contacts. Like my band was just like a demo band, no studio, like Uh literally no real path forward in any of this. And I was desperately looking for one. Sometimes I will still feel like that, like nothing has happened My life is exactly the same. And uh, none of this that's happened even happened, which is fucking crazy. But like I said before, I think that the trick is to doing your best to accept it because it doesn't change. It doesn't change at all. Um, I was talking to somebody who's in a massive band, massive, massive, one of the all time Ah. top selling heavy bands of all time. Jets, arenas, stadiums, that kind of shit.
2: Wow. You're talking to the Eagles? That's fucking cool. No, but,
0: you know, (laughs) in that realm. And he said, you think that you get to this point and you feel like you're at this point, but it still feels exactly the same. Like I'm in a local band and it could all fall apart at any moment. (laughs) Wow. He's like, you could make $20 million and you're still going to feel like you're broke. Damn, dude yeah it's because feelings are not rational
2: yeah that's fascinating although there are for for every 10 people that feel like we do there's always like you know there's the one or two narcissists that are just like is that it is that like (laughs) i've met a couple of those i'm just like bro oh
1: it's funny we've spoken about this again on a previous podcast about a certain level of narcissism is required for us to do what we do yes yeah, but then obviously you do get the people that are borderline.
0: Well, they're pathological narcissists.
1: Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yes.
0: Yeah. So on the there's a spectrum in narcissism as well as you know they're figuring out that basically all mental conditions are on some sort of spectrum pretty much, and uh, there's a narcissism spectrum too, and it's basically on a number system where you know one being basically zero narcissism in your system. 10 being you are a fucking maniac. Nine (laughs) and 10 are considered pathological to where the person needs medical intervention Wow, and will end up destroying their own lives. If they don't get help or becoming super famous (laughs) one or the other, and then destroying their own lives and the lives of the people around them. But it is said also that, uh, You know, if you're one or two, that's also a uh, medical problem. Like, you need help for that, too, uh, because you're going to just let people trample you. You're going to become a human doormat. Wow. You need just enough to where you feel like, you know, even if you feel like an imposter, there's still something in you that's like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I should do this. Sure. You write a song, and you have enough in you to actually put it out.
2: Wow.
0: You need a you need a little bit of that to just do those things.
2: Right. Oh wow. I never even thought about that. That blows my mind. So like really, we're probably what four
0: fives? You're probably a six. Yeah. Six or a seven. I'm assuming.
2: Whoa, seven. whoa, whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa there, pal. Not a seven.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you should take the test. You'll you'll see.
1: I will. I think it's a moving scale depending on what you are doing as well.
0: It does fluctuate depending on the situation and your mood and all those things.
1: Interesting. Wow. Today I learned. Have you ever been scared about releasing any of the music that you've written?
2: Yeah. So our first record was basically demos that we sat in a studio and wrote for fun because our previous band had fallen apart and we had the studio time booked. And what became the first Drake Dunder record was our producer Hiram, Tony, Josh, and I sitting, drinking energy drinks and coffee and just going, you would be sick. Here, here, give me that guitar. Give me that guitar. Check this out. Mm-hmm. Like, that's literally all it was. And we loved what we had done. And they were just, they were just Dropbox files for a while. And uh, we sent them out to just a few friends. And those friends started sending them out everywhere. And we were scared to death of putting out the actual first, like by the time it got to like, okay. Got to name the band now. You gotta, you gotta put out a single. You gotta, you know, you gotta make a music video, or just like, oh, I'm, am, I'm am just crippled with fear because we love this. So, um, that was the most recent time where we were just we were scared to death of putting any of that stuff out. Ironically,
0: you know what about you, Brown? Dude,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I've got a funny, funny story. So uh, Al was working on the Emanuensis with me. So he recorded Chris's vocals and Chris overshot his recording time by pretty excessive amount. Can't remember the exact time. I'm sure A.L. can tell you. Six weeks. So that left me six days to mix and master the record on top of obviously writing the records, recording all the guitars for the record, being at the studio recording the drums. And about two days before due date, I wanted to press delete on the whole fucking thing because I thought it was shit and it just so
0: wasn't shit.
1: It, <laughs> yeah, but there's no rational person can really talk you out of that feeling. Like once you've accepted that feeling in your head um, obviously, I'm glad I didn't because it's obviously everyone's favorite Monuments records. But at the time, I'd listened to it so many times that it'd gotten past the point where I thought it was good anymore because I knew exactly what was happening. It was almost just predictable. So, yeah, I mean, imposter syndrome there. I mean, yeah, I nearly pressed fucking delete on it.
0: <laughs>
2: wow.
1: This dude stayed at
0: my house for two months. <laughs> he was supposed to be there for two weeks.
1: Damn. <laughs> at least it was yeah. good. Like Yeah, uh,
0: at least it was good.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it, if it was shit, then that's a different story. But, I mean, he did pretty fucking well on that record.
0: So the reason I was okay with it was A, because it was really good, and B, because he wasn't being an asshole about taking up all my time. So <laughs> because he would only sing every other day and then only for, like, two hours. But um. I've had these experiences where bands will be staying at the studio you know, at the lodging at my old house and want me to spend every single available moment of my time on them, get mad if I don't. And he was totally cool. So I could do other work and so it's not like he stayed at my house for two months and totally destroyed my life. I I was able to keep working on other things.
1: He did take your dog's water though.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. You know, we had a good time, but still, it was yeah. two months. Yeah,
2: yeah, Damn. yeah. Damn. That's crazy.
0: I've talked to mixers about this too. I think mixers still, even the ones that we think are so badass, they still get that pang of fear when, you know, when they export an email to the client. Damn. Still. Wow. And I know some of them who will still get the urge to procrastinate that interesting yeah it doesn't go away
2: oh that's that's i don't know like i couldn't ever picture well i don't think chris lord algy does that but i'm sure like you know like imagine andy wallace being like i'm not sure about this
1: he probably does it every single mix to be honest probably like if he's human every single mix he'll be questioning it a little bit yeah wow he has to because no sane human doesn't do that and you know yeah, obviously we spoke about the narcissistic types that will just throw it out and say this is the best thing ever, not listen to any advice. But I just don't, I can't imagine that that's Andy Wallace's character at all. No telling. I don't know him. I, I don't just know think him that
0: <laughs> it is a very prevalent personality trait of people who do a lot of things um, that go out into the world and get themselves judged. I think for the most part, it doesn't get better. People just learn to tolerate it.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I agree. I think that the same thing can go for, you know, like we are creative minds. And I think that it's just a, a sort of byproduct of being able to tap into either do music or people that do art or anything that involves being creative. And I, in a way, I'm kind of jealous of your dad, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> that he was able to sit there for eight hours a day doing the same thing day in, day yeah. out with, without really questioning it. You know what I mean? He yeah. just got on with it. And that that in itself is quite a good skill set to have in in a weird way. Imagine if we could be creative and do that where we could actually like switch off all this bullshit of imposter syndrome and self-doubt.
2: Oh, my God. Can't even imagine what that even look like.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can't either. All right, so let's talk about how you balance your time now.
2: I think my girlfriend will probably tell you I don't.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I mean, you were saying the pre-interview that the lead time on your videos has increased, for instance. You finding yourself having to do a lot more planning?
2: Yeah, so when COVID started, so normally like a post-NAM on a regular year um, post Nam, I will get a flood of product. And normally when something's announced at Nam, it's not going to be released to like, you know, six months later, it's, you know, summertime when it's actually physically going to be able to be found in Sweetwater or something like that. I was on tour. We were on tour with the used for like almost two months and I'd been home four days out of the year up until March. And I get home. COVID started blowing up and I already had just tons and tons of gear waiting for me. And then suddenly the shift happened where um, content was the only thing that mattered uh, because everyone had to be at home. So all these companies' marketing budgets shifted to influencer, creative YouTube stuff because that was suddenly their only avenue. All of a sudden it just exploded and lead time shot up. And it got worse and worse and worse over the course of the year. And so by the time like the Christmas rush rolled around, my my videos were like, it was like, it was like a three-month wait time.
0: Jesus, dude.
2: It was unbelievable. So I was even, I even got a brand new Mac Pro, like a $17,000 Mac Pro tower, which paid for itself in like two weeks because the time it was taking me to render videos, I was able to do the math like, okay, this is costing me x amount of video work and money with sponsored videos and stuff like that so like I have to get this computer so then I was able to do film edit and render and upload three videos a day for seven days a week for like four or five months
1: that's insane
2: that was my life and I was so fucking burnt out by the time Christmas rolled around dude it was horrible
1: I can imagine. Dude, that's insane. 3 You filmed three videos a day, edited those three videos, and uploaded them. That's insane.
2: Yeah, and I was only able to do that because this computer, and I was doing that all in 4K, so I was only able to do that because this computer doesn't give a shit about anything I do video-wise, so I was the only one that was in my way to get something out. It gives no fucks. It gives no fucks, dude, so... What
0: are the specs on that thing?
2: It's basically a maxed out as far as the CPU. And I have a, it's like a Vega 2 video card. It has 194 gig of RAM. Jesus. It has just insane specs and I'll never need another computer for like another decade, probably. For at
1: least two years.
2: For at least two years, yeah. Um Until the M1s or the M2s come out or something.
1: Funnily, like while you're talking about that, I can hear my MacBook Pro taking off like an airplane carrier <laughs> right now by going on Zoom.
2: Gotta get that silicone, dude. The Apple silicone. That M1 chip. No, so that was my life. Uh, and then it kind of tanked at uh, Christmas. Okay, everything settled down. And now it's ramped up Again, not as bad as it was, but it is now currently, you know, uh, I have the Beartooth Tour starts in August, August 14th in Vegas. And in about a week, I'll be shutting down new pre-tour videos. So everything else will go after that tour, after I get back in about a week. So that's like, what, a month and a half or something.
1: You're a busy lad.
2: Dude, I'm so fucking busy. It's crazy.
1: Have you ever thought about getting people to sort of help you with elements of your operation such as like someone to help video edit or
2: I have I recently in the past I think it was a month ago uh, a buddy of mine Kevin who was in a band around here he has gotten into some real serious video work and he actually ended up quitting his job to do videos full-time he's the one that did like what is it the Jared and Jared Dines and Stevie T gent, gent God video at the beach and stuff like that like he's he's starting to do some cinematic videos so he is now my video editor and he also lives like a mile from me so that's pretty cool. But he's editing stuff like the non-demo stuff. So he's editing the Raider roasts, the Ridiculous Reverbs, the FAQ Mondays, the menial, repetitive time suck videos. I now just completely offload to him, which has been an unbelievable blessing. But then demo videos, like, I don't know. I love editing. I love post-production. I love all that stuff. So I still do all the demo videos, the guitar nerd gear videos. I still do all those, but... um you know, having those, you know, I'll, I'll do two videos a whack. So I'll film two Raider roasts, two FAQs, and two Ridiculous Reverb videos at a time. And that way I have weeks and weeks of material for those. And I usually alternate every other week. So it'll be a Raider roast one week, Ridiculous Reverb another week. Um, and that'll give me a month of content in an afternoon. So I'll film all those the same day and then just give them to him.
0: Do you think that modern guitar players... Should get good at video.
2: Yeah, because if that's the medium that they're going to be seeing. So, yeah, you know, guitar players should be boning up on basic uh, lighting principles, like old photography principles, basic video stuff. Everyone should know in today's world.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Much like the way that a lot of people now know basic recording stuff. like What's a DI? How do I use a DAW to record my own shit? that kind of stuff. I feel like video is now a similar sort of, uh, not requirement, but close to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'd actually say it's a requirement.
0: You think it's a requirement?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, obviously the iPhone technology being as good as it is now, I think that you can get away with a lot with just using an iPhone, but I mean, if you want to, you know, people to pay attention, then if you think about Instagram, the first thing that comes up when you're viewing Instagram is the visual aspects. They don't care about the audio in the first couple of seconds. So your video needs to look better than everyone else's and not just like in a, in how it is as quality, also in its composition, like, you know, Ryan was going about lighting techniques, but also the way the environment looks in the room that you're in, which is, you know, Ryan spe- spent a lot of money on his awesome looking room there, which looks, very, very sick. And I can imagine that plays a lot into it. Your
2: video journey has been amazing to watch because you absolutely like people are unwilling to just do the work and to learn and to grow. Like they want to be the best that they'll ever be right now. And I think that's like this weird aspect of like growing up with social media or something with the young people. I don't know. I'm sounding like an old man right now. But, <laughs> John, your stuff was always looked great, but you have made vast improvements visually to your youtube videos and it really for me as a viewer like i know that you give a shit a lot about your videos as opposed to just being on some blank walled bedroom because you have clearly spent so much time lighting and planning out your spaces
1: I think it's so important, you know, because people really pick up on that, you know, people pick up on the bullshit that goes beyond just like video work as well. If you're not playing a style of music that you're not completely 100% believing in, people can pick up on it. They can tell when you're bullshitting, it's just, it's just so apparent and same when you're doing something that you're not 100% invested in. So I think that that journey, I mean, it goes for you as well. I mean, like, obviously I've been watching your videos for years and you can see the progression in every single field as well. And I think that that's a, a good thing for people to see rather than seeing your best work now because it's always going to get better, isn't it?
2: You don't want to not have somewhere else to grow and, and go and you know, level up. Like, fuck, that'd be boring.
0: It would, wouldn't it? How much money do you think someone who's just getting started in video should be willing to drop?
2: I get this question daily from friends and guitar company reps that are wanting to get into the video game. Honestly, if they could come up with even $1,200 and get a basic, like I'm on our web stream right now, like I use a a Sony a6400 and just a super basic lens. That's all you need to start doing something really, really cool. But if you can't do that, just use an iPhone. (laughs) Cell phones are so damn good now. Some of my favorite channels use cell phones, dude. Adam Savage from Tested and Mythbusters. His YouTube channel, since COVID, he's had to do everything himself. He shoots everything on that channel with an Android cell phone. Everything, and it looks awesome.
1: That's insane. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I I had no idea. I actually tweeted at him and asked him. He was like, "Oh yeah, it's just
1: a it's
2: a Samsung Galaxy whatever." And I was just like, "Wait, for the for the audio too?" And he's like, "Yeah, we tested out a bunch of different phones and that one sounded and looked the best. So that's what we use. We have like four of them. Cool.
1: Thanks. That's insane. Yeah. 5 million subs. <laughs> fucking hell.
0: <laughs> what you do with it is much more important than what you're using.
1: Yep. That's true. Same goes for the audio world, isn't it? I agree. You listen back to those old recordings of like death and they're using a Marshall 8 100 and it's a fucking cheap ass amp and it sounds fucking devastating.
2: Dude, <laughs> I, I, I get that question, you know, being the gear, like the, I'm the gear dude or whatever, like um, my setups, anything I'm using like uh, for tour is forever scrutinized. And, you know, people are just like, why are you using a Helix? Dude, are you going to use Quad Cortex? Are you going to use the new, the new new?" And I was just like, no, no one, no one in the crowd at any show that I'm playing is sitting there going like, dude, this would be sick if he was using a Fractal instead of that Helix. Like no one cares while they're listening to music, like no music listener is going to be like, if those were uh, D'Addario strings, this would be a much better experience. Like, nope. <laughs>
1: no. One does Can you that. imagine getting that?
2: Dude, <laughs> no one does that. And so it doesn't matter, man. Like whatever you're stoked on to get your guitar tone, do it. I don't care what it is. Who cares?
1: Can you imagine getting approached at a guitar show saying, "Ah, that would have sounded way better with those strings, man."
2: Dude, we were playing Chain Reaction in my old band, and at the last
0: <laughs> la- it happened.
2: The the, the last song <laughs> of the set. Of course. It starts off with the real nice arpeggiated clean intro that I'm doing, spotlights on me, and this drunk dude, 300 people, sold out show. This dude in the front starts yelling, why did you choose the Maxon OD808 versus the Tube Screamer TS9, bro? Dude, loud as fuck. Like, it's over, because it's just me and the guitar playing, and all these people are like, what in the bam! Like, dude, I wanted to kick the dude so bad, and he's just asking me gear questions in the middle
1: of the fucking song. That is insane. True story. (laughs) (laughs) It's never been that bad for me. Fuck. I feel you, I feel for you Ryan I am, I'm sorry on behalf of this man for you It's okay
0: I'm sure that that guy's been to your show too Brown
1: <laughs> I'm sure <sorry>, he has
0: <laughs> I'm sure he has And every single periphery show ever Oh fuck that's so funny
2: <laughs>
0: And just wait Just wait
2: till I come to a show Brown I'm gonna be that motherfucker right out the front
0: What possessed him to think That that was the right time to ask well, like you're going to stop the show and give him an answer?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I think he's probably intoxicated or something. I'm guessing. Not super sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> imagine, <laughs> I can imagine he wasn't.
2: Honestly, like I remember distinctly, like, because I have my in ears in and like I can't, I can hear him. And he's, I'm looking down at my pedal board and he's like, hey man, and like looking up at me and trying to get my attention. And he's pointing to the overdrive pedal on my pedal board right in front of him. And his two friends on each side of him like slapped him in the back of the head. Yeah, true story. Chain reaction.
0: It's so weird, man. This is a very strange uh, obsession that this audience has with the wrong thing. And I say that knowing full well that gear is cool.
2: Dude, gear is cool.
0: Yeah, you've got a ton of amps. Both of you have a ton of amps. I used to have a ton of amps. Like that shit's cool. Fuck yeah. Pedals are cool. It's all cool. But I feel like a lot of the audience in this world prioritizes that ahead of what's actually important. Don't you think?
2: I think the hype machine has done a huge disservice to the music, a lot of the musicians and the marketing of the companies are largely responsible for making you think that what you have is suddenly not good enough when it was yesterday. Um, but they don't know, like, these younger players, and I, I again, I'm going to sound like an old man here, but, like, you know, back pre-internet, pre-social media, like, that just wasn't even a thing. Like, you just used what worked for you, and then I, I don't recall ever giving a second thought. Like, I had a couple of Randall RG100 hashtags that I used to tour around with in the early two thousands, and I never like sat and was like, Oh, this isn't good enough for me to make my music. I need a rectifier, I need the new whatever it was. Like, I don't ever recall doing that.
1: I definitely did. It was called Harmony Central.
2: <laughs> okay, I wasn't on Harmony Central.
1: But <laughs> no, you are correct.
2: But like it, it wasn't to the degree that we do it now. So now people you know, I do I get I get kids all the time hit me up like, okay, so I just got this. You know, I just got this fractal six months ago. I think I can get on the wait list for the quad cortex. What do you think? Like, should I should I go ahead and sell that at a loss? You know, it's like a new car, like drive it off the lot and it's devalued 3000 bucks instantly. But, you know, should I get that? quad? I'm just like, dude, what do you think? Have an opinion, make a decision. Do you like what you have? Well, yeah, I love it, but that could be better. I'm like, well, just use what you like. Like, just use the fractal. Jesus.
1: I think it's just the fact that there's so much damn choice now. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Like when we were younger, like we were kind of like, my parents wouldn't let me use credit cards on the internet. Mm -hmm. So you were limited to sort of spots where like local music stores, basically. So you kind of got what you could afford that was the best by the person that was selling you the piece of gear. And that's kind of, or maybe you had word of mouth from some friends or maybe you saw your favorite artist playing a certain head. And that was as far as it got. But now it's kind of almost like a social hierarchy where you listen to like the people that everyone's replying to. Right. So you kind of follow suit for that. That's interesting.
2: Uh, Yeah. Actually, I think the only gas that I, rec- I do recall having as I saw a band with this weird 5150 amp and i was like that fucking sounds like uh, w- what the hell like that makes it on its own it sounds like that like what <laughs> the hell like i i didn't know what that was but uh yeah in that context like you, you know you're playing with another band or something like that for sure you're always like did that sound sick i should get one of those but like you didn't sit at home and think about like how your how your stuff sucked like, I don't know, I, I, I didn't, I love
0: gear. You love gear and obviously you review gear. Yeah. And there's a lot of gear always uh, passing through your domicile. But when it comes to like just writing and riffing and doing the thing, do you use all that stuff or you kind of just use what you like and kind of have your go-tos?
2: I will use different guitars for different flavors. I have a couple of Les Pauls. I have a couple of Smiths. I'm with Ernie Ball Music Man, and I love their guitars more than any other guitars, just because, I don't know, they, their necks always feel really great, but um, they're like shoes for me. Guitars are, like, very much like shoes, like...
0: But I mean the other stuff, like the amps and, like, the pedals and, like... Oh, no. That, that's kind of what I mean, It's like, with, with people who are going nuts about, like, should I sell this and get this and, like, six months later get this and then what do I do? Well, in reality, you don't do that, even if you have the channel. Like, I think it's pretty normal if you're recording to have several guitars around so that for different flavors. But when it comes down to it, you've got the stuff that you prefer that your ear and your hands have gravitated towards, and that's that.
2: Dude, I laugh at myself sometimes because I, like, I literally have, like, everything. And if I'm in writing, like, tracking mode or something like that, I will get a DI, I'll split it off, I'll bring up a patch on the Helix rack that I have in my desk, and then I'll record the DI, and then I go. And I don't really give too much thought about it. I'm not sitting there, like, choosing which which amplifier, like, <laughs> you know, like, I'm standing in front of my amps, like, hmm, what should I use today? And like, I don't, that doesn't happen. I don't care.
1: It's really funny. I, You know, like, I've got all these amps behind me. I think there's about 14 of them, and... Today, I had a writing session with uh, with Monuments, and I just plugged into my Pod XT Pro. Dude, it works. Dude, it sounds great. <laughs> right. I mean, I've, I've had it since 2007. It's plugged in. I don't have to think about it because yep. I got a tone that I liked on it. And just write some fucking music. Stop playing around with the tones all the time. Right,
2: <laughs> right, dude. And also, I will note that you get some of the best tones ever to be had on that thing. You were like, do you do... Did you just spend the time EQing or what? Like,
1: I think I got lucky. This patch is the same patch that I've been using since 2010. Wow. And obviously I tweak it here and there, but ultimately it just, it works. Why well, keep tweaking so that, you know, like, you know, we we're talking about the quad cortex and the fractal. And it's like, I have an Axe FX3 in my rack. I've got the Helix, I've got the Pod XT. And I just go to the Pod XT because I know it's just going to work. Like, Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) And this is coming from two dudes that have a lot of gear. Dude, too much. Too much gear. (laughs) I've actually been selling stuff off recently just because I've... Imposter syndrome, again, it's like, why have I got all of this? Like, yeah, it looks cool on video, but like, ultimately, why? That's why. why? That's literally it. It's almost like like the ornament on your mantelpiece, except it makes really great sounds.
2: (laughs) I had a really (laughs) shitty storage unit, and then it occurred to me like, uh, I should probably get the, like a really nice storage unit like a climate controlled all digital entry yes and I got I finally got everything insured. So before everything at the house was insured but anything outside of the house was not insured. That is not the case anymore. I got a climate controlled storage unit and I have just just fucking rows and rows and rows and rows of of guitars and piles of amps and it's it's sad. I get so much shit every time I post a picture people are just like bro. A 5150 should not be in storage. Like, that is, oh, that is sacrilege, bro. (laughs) Okay, well, I don't have room. Sorry.
0: Where's that dude's 5150?
2: (laughs) In my storage unit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Here's another thing I'm wondering about the people who go nuts about this stuff and have super strong opinions about gear. How often do you think that they have super strong opinions about gear they've never used? Dude.
2: Most of the time.
0: Yeah, that's what I've noticed, too.
2: Along with that, I don't know if like this will be... Uh, if this angers anybody, I'm sorry. Uh, gear companies included. The clickiness, the company mafias. And I'm not talking about the company specifically. I'm talking about the users and the consumers of particular companies. So you have Fortin fanboys. Anything that's not, you know... Force Fortin. If it has more than one knob and costs less than 500 bucks, then I don't fucking want it, guys.
1: <laughs> the, the
2: fucking... The neural DSP guys that they're like the reaper users of the fucking modeling world (laughs) i swear to god i get so many comments of users going uh i could get that tone of my quad cortex Uh, who cares about a soldano that's a fucking who no one should ever pay four thousand dollars for an amplifier you know those guys (laughs) all the companies have it you know the kiesel users are so proud of their fucking guitars you know what again use whatever you like but like Do you really have to like go up to the top of the mountain and be like, everything else you have sucks unless it's what I use? Like, I don't get that mentality, man. I don't know. It's the
1: clickiness. (laughs) It's a little bit. It depends. Like, there's a difference between someone asking you a question for your opinion, and then someone giving an unsolicited opinion with no credit. Yes,
2: that's exactly what I'm talking about. Unsolicited. I'm talking to someone and someone chimes in with, well, my quad cortex can uh, can load, you know, 50 of those phasers. So,
1: you know. Like, <laughs> and yeah, do you use all 50 of those <laughs> fucking phasers? You- <laughs> just like, God, dude, just calm I'm down. getting fucking angry right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> do you have 50 phasers?
1: I don't want 50 phasers. I don't want one.
0: Yeah, because you don't have a quad cortex, do you?
2: Dude, the gear, the gear is magical.
0: Yeah, you can't even load 50 phasers. Dude. It's
1: apparently in the post.
2: I know. I will reiterate anyone getting upset about what I said. It has never been a better time to play guitar. It is Willy Wonka's chocolate factory for guitar gear and tones and all of it is wonderful. But latching on to something and shouting out like you know and telling people what they have isn't good enough is unhealthy. That that was
0: all my point was. It is and it's misguided. Also that it reverses the order of priority. It does. That a player should have it should be hands first, guitar second, gear third, in my opinion. Uh, but this puts gear first kind of equal with the guitar and what the person is actually doing last. Right.
1: Yeah. That that, that songwriting part is at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, dude, uh, uh, like, why aren't we
2: talking about like signature fingernail clippers and shit? like?
1: Oh dude, that sounds like a perfect marketing that, tool right there.
2: A fingernail pair of fingernail clippers is my most cherished item when I'm on tour. Like, why doesn't anybody talk about that? I don't know.
1: <laughs> the
2: Fortin fingernail clipper and it has like one knob and that you I don't know.
0: <laughs> True bypass. All right. So let's talk about writing. You said songwriting is at the bottom of the Mariana trench, so let's let's uh bring it up. I wanna hear about what it's like to write in a writing session with an outside writer.
2: During COVID, it's awkward Skype sessions pre-COVID. It is much more productive sitting in a room with someone that you don't know. Actually, for me, it adds to the that tension is what's going to make you bring your best shit as far as playing riff ideas, all that stuff, because you don't want to waste anyone's time. And it goes back to that kind of that imposter syndrome a little bit. Like you don't want to waste. I am so fearful of wasting anyone's time our main goal as a band, as people, is like no one should be waiting on us for anything. And it also extends to songwriting. So if we're in a co writing with a new person, someone has to start something. Someone has to, mm-hmm. okay, so what do you got? Is always the, is always how it starts. And so I'll start with a riff. And then, oh, you know what would be cool after that? Or you know, what would be cool as if you put the tail on that and, you know, or whatever. Generally speaking the the co-writes for me are a good hang. And usually the first day is always a little tense cuz you don't know each other, you make a few dick jokes and then you're off to the races. You know what I mean?
0: Like so it, I guess at the end of the day it is just kind of like writing with someone in the band but they're not in the band kind of.
2: Yeah, so so the difference between writing with someone in the band and writing someone that's not in the band is they don't have there's a wall there. They've never seen you They've never been with you when you're like, guys, I really have to shit. Please pull over and on the (laughs) van. So there is that uh, there's a different kind of respect because your bandmates will never, ever take you as seriously as someone that doesn't know you will in that situation.
1: That's a good point.
2: They're invested differently in it. So the guy that you're co-writing with is thinking, I want to make this as best as possible because I have 25 points on this co-write. So I'm going to make this like a real banger because I want to pay my mortgage. So, whereas the, my bandmate's going to go, hey, did you run out of toilet paper again? <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a huge difference. Like, we were really weird about co-writes in the beginning. That was all new to us.
0: Lots of bands are at first.
2: It's okay. Like, if anyone's listening, that was the difference between our old band, Rest Repose, and Drag Dunder. Drag Dunder was the first band that we ever brought an outside producer and an outside songwriter into the fold to at least help us. Actualize what we were trying to do and going, mm, that should be a C or, you know, this should, i try it this way. Like we never had anyone like that. And that just opened our entire world with when we had Hiram.
1: I would love to work with someone to do that with me.
2: I can recommend a few guys, man. Honestly, like it's game changing to really zoom out.
1: Did you find that it relieved an element of stress for your responsibility when it came to writing? Obviously, you are still responsible for the output of your band, but at the same time, did it feel like you almost had an additional set of legs to stand on or uh, shoulders to lean on and knowing that it was going to come out good? So having
2: someone in there with you, it does a, a few things. One, when you're trying to decide on a part between, let's say, another bandmate, it's no longer like an argument. You're spending less energy trying to convince them why it's good or why it's bad, you now have a, a, a third person going, no, nope, that's that's bad, let's move on, and then it's done. Or, hey, that's really good. We should try that over here. So you do definitely, it feels like you're sitting in the passenger seat as opposed to driving. And I'll pick the passenger seat all day long in, in that regard.
1: But the less arguments, it's the respect, isn't it? Yeah. Like, because obviously other band members will have a different perception of what they see you as. Yes. It happens with every band, I think, to a degree. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having someone that, you know, they haven't seen your shit, they haven't seen your dick wafting around when you've been too pissed. Right. You know, it's a different level of respect. Right. (laughs) What was your hesitancy?
2: Our manager is Joey Bradford. He plays guitar in The Used, and he was the one that was like, you know, you guys should think about writing with some other people. And... Our hesitancy was those old tropes of like those music industry tropes and like you know the '90s or something like that, where like there was going to be some executive with this giant cigar going, "Ha ha, that's you know, that's a good idea.
0: You're a fake band, a record company construction."
2: Like the Eagles wrote all their songs. No, they didn't. Actually, they had an insane amount of co-writes, and they very much embraced co-writes. That's a great example of like the power of bringing outside people in to co-write. You know, they had they would have uh, JD what's his name, you know, Co-Write Peaceful Easy Feeling, you know, or, you know, Jackson Brown. Anyway, our hesitancy was like, oh, well, then we're not a real band if we have people coming in and, like, helping us craft our songs, which actually just isn't true.
1: I think what it is as well is that people didn't know that the producers were more involved in those, you know, the older bands that you were just describing there.
2: I didn't know until we got to where we're at now, but, like, you can hear a producer's fingerprint if you know really what to listen to, like, you know, you ever have those bands, I'm not going to name names, but like those bands that have like those three really, really, really killer albums. And then they go off and work with someone else and the album just sucks. Like, oh.
0: Yeah. Or the singer decides to self-produce and he's the producer.
2: Right. It's like, oh, okay. That's what that, <laughs> that's what the producer brought to the table. He brought that element of balance and energy and he was wrangling and babysitting in some cases, the band to get that product. And when that is missing, you know, you're not being your best self as a band because it's it's about songs. It's about in five years, is, is, is any of this gonna matter when it's on the radio and people are like driving to the grocery store singing along to your shit?
1: Yeah, it doesn't. It's basically, yeah, I, I guess the co-write and the producer are there to organize the chaos, aren't they?
2: Yes, that's, that's, that's how I look at a producer. And our producer, uh, for the first record and the second one, he's doing the second one as well. We're in the middle of doing the second one. Hiram Hernandez. He's also one of the best damn guitar players I've ever seen in my life. Like he, he knows a little bit of theory and he like, he's so fucking good at and ripping on guitar. And so he can take the guitar and, Oh, were you trying to do this? Or are you trying to do this? So he brings much more of like a polish and just, I don't know, man, it's just a really great combination with, with us and him.
0: Perfect. I think there's this hesitancy with uh, rock and metal bands because they're afraid of how they're going to be perceived, too. They're afraid that the audience is going to think that they're fake.
2: Because mm-hmm. b- people see those memes of like, you know, Beyonce, 12 songwriters, 15 producers, you know, Queen, one, one songwriter, one, you know, it's like, come on, like, I'm not fucking Freddie Mercury. Sorry, but I'm also not Beyonce. I'm not hiring people to write me a song. I am also in the thick of it, writing the song as well, but I'm just having someone go, you know, holding the flashlight while I'm drilling into the hole kind of a thing or, you know, building the house, so to speak.
0: I think there's a lot of lack of understanding of where songs come from or what it takes to develop songs. And I think it's actually very, very few people who are capable of writing a song from beginning to end totally by themselves and then just have it fucking rule. Right. It's a very small number of
2: people. Dude, and arrangements, like not even the song, like, okay, fine, you have parts. Let's talk about arrangements and like the crafting of the actual song. How's the song going to start? Well, how's it going to end? Like, that's just as important. Are you going to do a drop chorus? Are you going to do bridge? Are you going to have a guitar solo? No guitar solo? Okay, then what, you know, all of these things I never even thought about until Drag Under happened. It was a bag of riffs is not a song as much as guitar players love that. Like, I don't want to, I don't know, man. Like those are the people that only guitarists only want to hear a bag of riffs. And same with shredding. Like we get asked all the time, like, how come you don't shred, bro? Like, give me that ying vei. Like, I'm like, first of all, you don't know me. Also, you don't know the band, <laughs> but also the only people that want to hear shredding are other shredders and We want to grow beyond that. We want to be played in the grocery store. You know, we want to be playing huge arenas and there's no room for ripping crazy guitar solos in that context in our music.
1: I think that what it all comes down to is guitar players don't really think about if it serves the song. And I'm not saying all guitar players there. I'm just saying the ones that want to hear five minutes of consistent 290 beats per minute, 32 second note shred sweeps. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, it's fun to listen to. It's admirable to watch. But ultimately, that's not a song.
2: I'll do these live streams while I'll just run my band set so I can just stay up on the songs uh, when I have downtime. Uh, Mike from All That Remains popped in and I had been asked about songs and something along these lines. And I just said, like, we don't we don't want to have ripping guitar solos. We want huge, catchy, anthemic melodic hooks. And Mike Martin chimes in and goes, guys, he's right. Choruses pay mortgages. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's fucking right. Not that money is like the end all, but like we love big old sing alongs and like, you know, that kind of stuff that the things that your parents and your mom can like sing along to as well. Like, um, that's what we want. And I'm blessed to have grown up in the 90s where at a time where shredding was like the most uncool thing ever. And it was really all about. The song you had guys like Soundgarden and Nirvana and all these grunge bands, Alice in Chains, that like okay, really about the song. Everything else is second, honestly.
0: If you don't have that, what do you have?
2: Absolutely nothing. Yeah, dude. Honestly, uh, I had John Petrucci on on my channel, and we were talking about the new Liquid Tension Experiment album. And the thing I liked about it because they let me hear it like before it came out, this is a few months ago, and uh, I was like, these sound like songs. Like these sound like crafted songs, which is no offense, surprising because you're John Petrucci, you're also playing with Tony Levin and you're also playing with Jordan, you know, like all these shredding dudes. And he was like, no one wants to hear finger exercises for four minutes. Like that, that would be stupid without, especially without a vocalist, you know, like they're in, instrumental bands. So he's like, yeah, we have to have sections defined songs with sections. And I was like, I think that's brilliant to even think about.
1: It's why I love Petrucci, actually, like if you just go through his entire discography, it's always been a focus on the products of the song. You can hear even on like songs like A Change of Seasons that are, you know, in the fucking, you know, practically half an album. It's still structured as if it was a pop song and then they have their sections where they go crazy which actually elevates just how good he is as a guitar player because it serves the song. It's always in the purpose of the song. Yes. And I think that, you know, especially in my, I mean, I just wanted to shred when I was younger, you know, listening to John. And I was just going, trying to do as fast as I can. But ultimately, the the most important skill set of what elevated that playing to the next level was the fact that the, they wrote such good songs to accompany that style of playing.
2: Yeah, agree. Totally. He's, he's so brilliant that way.
1: I have always kind of thought that the
0: best guitar players who do the best tend to find a band or start a band or get with a vocalist or something where there are real songs. You end up with the situations like Van Halen, you know, or all the way to something like Dream Theater, where no matter how proggy it is, like, there's songs. And it's no surprise that these bands are I mean, we're talking about two completely different types of music, but you know, I disagree with you that there's no place for badass shreddy guitar in arenas. I just think that it can't be just that. That's what. There's yeah, no yeah, for. I agree. But there's plenty of bands that I mean, Avenged Sevenfold. It's another one. There's a place for great lead guitar playing in huge bands, but it has to be a song's first. Kind of band.
2: I was more thinking of like neoclassical Yngwie, like straight, like just crazy scale run kind of stuff. Yeah. Avenged Sevenfold is a great example of, or, you know, even um, Nickelback has some some bangers with some, with some real ripping guitar solos and stuff. Like they're playing arenas. They sure as hell are. Journey, dude. Neil Schoen is one of the most ripping guitar players of all time. And yeah, he's playing arenas with Journey still to this day. You know, Alison Chains. Jerry Cantrell is like one of my all-time guitar heroes. Extreme. You know, yeah. Oh, dude. Right.
1: Fucking Nuno Battencourt. Dude. That guy's ridiculous. Ridiculous. He'll wipe the floor with your face with how good he is at guitar. Yes, he will.
0: (laughs) Well, it it just goes to show that there is a place for great guitar playing in huge bands.
2: As long as it's not my band. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't like him either. It's all good.
0: (laughs) You don't like what either?
1: Guitar solos.
0: Yeah, neither do I. Yeah.
1: But that doesn't mean there's no place for them. Because let's be honest, Agreed. like when you, when you listen to Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, that guitar solo is just perfect for that song. When you listen to Beat It by Michael Jackson, imagine that guitar solo not being there. It'd be so weird. Yeah. And it just rips. It's insanely difficult to play as well. It's like God tier of a guitar solo. Yeah, you're right. Have you ever been interested in playing solos? Not really,
2: to be honest with you. When I was growing up, like, I started playing in the summer of 94, and that was like, you know, I'm in Seattle.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, where you're from matters.
2: It was so uncool to do (laughs) guitar solos. Like, one of the first guitar worlds I ever saw was, like, the cover of, like, Joe Satriani, and it's like, is Shred dead? And, like, Shred was an 80s thing, and that was, like, so uncool. It was all about writing great songs, simplistic songs, Nirvana, you know, all of those bands.
0: Well, those were your local bands.
2: They were very much local bands. Dude, my first show ever was a, a band called Grunt Truck, who opened the uh, Soundgarden Super Unknown Tour, uh, and a band called Seven Year Bitch, whose singer was married to the drummer for Rage Against the Machine for years. But uh, it's like so grungy. Like, KSW used to have free shows. And like the year before, Alice in Chains had played and like Pearl Jam has played. Like, it was just this free Seattle show, like, you know, uh, under the Space Needle thing. Um, Like, that was the environment I grew up in. So the solo thing was not cool.
1: (laughs) You lucky son of a bitch.
2: (laughs) Dude, it was was unbelievable. I was a little young for it. Like, I was 13 when Nirvana played the Peered MTV show. My parents wouldn't let me go. But, you know,
1: whatever. It was pretty cool. Even Nirvana have a guitar solo. They have
2: one. Yeah, okay.
0: (laughs) If you can call it that. Nah, there's a couple.
2: There was places for that. You know, Soundgarden, Kim Thale was ripping guitar solos left and right in Soundgarden, and that stuff was still cool, but it was always within the context of a song. That's all that ever really mattered to me was the songs. I don't know. I never cared about shredding.
0: I think what really, really matters at the end of the day, and um, this is true in very popular instrumental music too, like the... Most popular of the instrumental guitar players, for instance, is something catchy. So Joe Satriani had that down too. Like even if you venture outside of typical songs, the thing that cannot be forgotten about is stuff that catches in people's heads that they want to hear afterwards that they keep singing to themselves.
2: That's right. doesn't matter what it is. If, it, if someone's humming it while they're doing the dishes, mission accomplished. It's that simple.
0: Well, I think it's a good place to end the episode on that note. I want to thank you for coming on, and uh, good luck selling the van.
2: Thank you. I I uh, I already went out there once and to to show it to him, and he's like, "Cool, I'm going to come back." And it was supposed to be yesterday, and then it got moved to today. He's like, "Cool, can I'll be there?" You know, twelve o'clock. And I was like,
0: oh. <laughs> "So, <laughs> well." Good luck. Congrats again on everything.
2: Thanks, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, gents. It's been a uh, a huge privilege and an honor uh, being
1: on this wonderful podcast. I'm a huge fan. It's always a pleasure. Been great to chat to you, man. We have to stop being strangers and talk more.
2: Dude, right? Uh, hopefully we can hang out when I come over there.
0: Well, it's cool to hear that the downpicking gym has helped him.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it can really help anyone, to be honest. And as he said, he just did it in his uh, spare time, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, and he's seen vast improvements. And that's coming from someone whose entire career is based around him playing the instrument.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to me, though, that uh, he never played with a metronome. And I know that you said that he did kind of because he played with his drums, but I think it's different than actual metronome practice.
1: I guess the best sort of analogy is there's a difference between someone that cooks food and someone that's a chef. And he'd been playing to a metronome and obviously there's a difference between playing to a metronome and analyzing what you're doing with the metronome. And I think that that's the difference that happened when he started on the downpicking gym and actually got a metronome app. Because obviously with drums in the way, you can get away with a little bit more leeway than just a solo guitar with a metronome
0: yeah absolutely. I mean, a metronome and just you forces you to listen to every little detail
1: yes, exactly yeah
0: let's talk about the down picking gym and how people can get better using it
1: it's an intense well can be intense set of exercises that is catered to improving endurance, stamina, and strength in. The picking hand by focusing on down picking only and that's where the pick just hits down misses the up and then goes and hits the down again and this particular technique was sort of made famous by thrash metal guitar players of the 80s onwards and the main reason why it's so good to learn this skill set is it just makes you more consistent with the picking hand which I feel a lot of guitar players see as a second or an afterthought. They're so focused on what notes they're playing with the left hand that they forget that their picking hand is the last point of contact before the guitar is amplified by whatever amp or plug-in or modeler that they're playing through. It's the entirety of the sound that's coming out of the guitar is coming from that motion. So making sure that your picking hand is as strong as it can be is probably the most important thing that you can really focus on when it comes to a skill set on the electric guitar.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know that getting good at down picking basically revolutionized my guitar playing.
1: It revolutionized mine too, completely.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because it didn't take six hours a day either. It, it kind of, when I was working on it, it was something that... I could work on 20 or 30 minutes a day and just be good to go. As long as I kept doing
1: it. Mine sort of coincided with writing, with basically what Ryan was doing with his videos, where he's obviously recording songs for product demonstrations. It was kind of a similar approach, except that I would really hone in on what I was doing with the parts that I was writing or re-recording. And as I used to spend hours and hours and hours a day writing, I was working alongside that by practicing the down picking as well. So I mean, it's not something that you have to sort of do separately. I mean, if you warm up with it 5, 10, 20 minutes a day and then start adding it into your vocabulary when it comes to writing, then you can cover a lot of ground in a very, very short amount of time.
0: Absolutely. And then if you're using it v- in your vocabulary as part of writing and playing your band's songs, then it's just part of what you do.
1: It's part of what you do, and you're going to consistently get better at it. As we've already said a lot during this podcast, that downpicking is a diminishing sort of skill set that just gets worse and just disappears if you just don't do it, even just for a week at a time.
0: I refer to it as a perishable skill.
1: I got the wrong word there. I'm sorry. I'm English and can't speak it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes away. It's, In my opinion, that's the first thing to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just it, it, it's it's a form of muscle training, isn't it? Like muscles, if you don't use them, they just get weaker and weaker.
0: Yeah, they don't they don't they don't like to maintain.
1: No, and it doesn't matter what you're doing with any of your muscles. If you don't do it on a regular basis, it's just going to get worse. Yes, you'll have a point where you can still play the instrument, but if you're not really focused on it, then that skill set's going to go, much like any other skill set.
0: Absolutely. So don't let it go. Riffhard.com.
1: don't let it go go to riffar.com yeah don't let it go yeah all right see you next week bro see you later mate thanks for
0: listening to the riffar podcast we'll see you next week